Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome back to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we have another episode here for you guys. We are here to become better habitat managers, and we do that by interviewing the experts out there in the world, the habitat gurus. This week, we have Charlie Morse from Morse Nurseries. Morse Nursery is a Michigan-based nursery where all their trees and plants are dedicated to wildlife and wildlife management. None of the flowers and stuff you see at Home Depot. Strictly trees for wildlife management, better mass-bearing root stock, and overall quality plants. We are going to get into things like the type of soil you should be planting your trees in, where to plant your trees, root stock, grafting, favorite fruit and mass trees by Charlie, some tips on planting, protecting the bark layer, there's all kinds of tricks and great information, and Charlie's just a wealth of knowledge. I took down a ton of notes from this podcast. So, guys, let's get Charlie on the line. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsors for the Habitat Podcast. I'm very grateful to have these guys on board helping us, all of our sponsors. Uh, they're great companies, and I really wish you guys would check them out and support them as they support us at the Habitat Podcast. Dip That Hydrographics, Gabe Paselli out of Pennsylvania. Brian just got his CVA muzzleloader done in a Badlands camo, and that thing is BA. Really cool looking. He did the barrel, the stock, everything. He did a really good job. He even took time to make sure the bolt and screw holes and all of that were all cleaned out for a good assembly when putting it back together. Brian is super pumped. Uh, I'm going to get one of my guns sent over there here shortly, but check out Gabe at Dip That Hydrographics. 
Next, we have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. This is a group of guys and gals out of Michigan. We film all of our hunts and put them out for the web to see a DVD form and a YouTube and web show based format. Going on our 10th season this year of Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, and it's all real hunting, chasing pressured deer, you know, two, three, four-year-old bucks, even one-and-a-half-year-old bucks. We do it all. Real people, real deer hunting in Michigan. They can be found at michiganwhitetailpursuit.com, Facebook, and YouTube as well. Thank you guys for your support. Next, we have the Habitat Hook from Nick Nation. Now, guys, we get a discount from Nick and Gabe at the Hydrographics, but Nick's is a 10% discount when you mention the Habitat Podcast. Go on his website, nationscreations.net, and check out the aluminum extendable Habitat hook. I've been out using mine, and that thing is a godsend. I don't know how people hinge without it, because you can keep the tree more intact before you push it over with the use of a hook. Otherwise, you have to cut through the tree more before you can tip it over and hope it stays together. This way, I'm cutting, you know, 60% through and then using the hook to press the tree over. And I had almost a 100% success rate um, in my hinges. Only, like, two trees broke the whole morning I was out there last. So, check out nationscreations.net and the Habitat hook. I also want to check out Lincoln Rowan, Packer Max line of Cultipackers. He just picked up another truckload full of uh, Packer drums the other day from the local manufacturing plant. Now, you got to go check Lincoln out. He has any sort of packer you'll need for this spring when planning your plots. Lincoln Roan, Packer Max line of Cultipackers. Thanks for your support. And last but not least, Killer Food Plots. You can find Nick at almost any outdoor show this spring. We're working right now on putting together another soil testing kit for guys like us out there to be able to test our soil, send it into killer food plots, and then tell us what we need based on what we want to plant. I know this year I'm also going to be frost eating some more clover and chicory from the KFP line. I had great success with that last year. Um, blew my mind how good that came in, and I frost-seeded it uh, third week in March. I know there's a video on uh, our YouTube on how that comes in, but check that out, guys. Nick at KillerFoodPlots.com. Great quality seed, good price, read the seed tags, it's not full of that BS. Alright guys, thank you so much to our sponsors, we really support you guys, as, and thank you for supporting us. Uh, now let's get Charlie Morse on the line. Alright Charlie, well we normally start this out by hearing about our guests, you know, where they're from, where they grew up. Uh, maybe how they got into the field they're in, and which you would be the nursery. Do you mind going into that for us and tell us a little bit about you? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I normally don't like talking about myself, <laughs> it's, but um, yeah, I'm married for 47 years. I have two two children and. Um, Oh, I've had a couple of different careers throughout my lifetime. I was in the Marine Corps, um, and uh, I actually didn't get into the farming business or the 
the nursery business until I was 50. And I had a, an opportunity in my life that came along where I had sold a business and it was one of those things, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And um, I, I've always been a green thumb. My family has always been farmers and on my dad's side. And so um, I went back to Michigan State University, went through their production tree program, and their master gardener program. And, and I learned a little bit about bugs and soil and, and things. Things like that, and just decided to go for it. So I, uh, I started it, um, put in the greenhouses, bought the land, put in the irrigation systems, and and just went for it. And didn't know how things would turn out at all, but I knew that's what I wanted to do, and I was willing to give it a shot. And so it kind of turned in the beginning. It kind of felt like a hobby, and then it turned into a business real quick. So that's how that happened. Oh, very cool. And uh, thank you for your service in the Marine Corps. We always appreciate that. Oh, yeah, sure. And uh, and so were you a big deer hunter or a hunter? Yeah, so I've or? been a hunter my whole life. I remember being a kid with a recurve. Um, my claim to fame is I shot a black squirrel right off the top of a, running across the top of a fence, probably at 20 yards. Wow. And, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so um, I, I'm a little bit different in, in terms of people that are in our business are not usually hunters, and um, they don't really relate to plants and hunting or plants and animals or habitat uh, the way I do. And, and here in Michigan, you have to have a hobby. In the winter, you kind of go stir-crazy, and I, um, I always had beagles and wheat. Me and my friends, we'd brag about each each of our dogs uh, who was in the lead and who opened first and so on. And, but when when we were at on, we bounced all kinds of game out of their bedding areas. And I always we took an interest in why they picked this place, you know, of all the places they could. And so we just paid attention to habitat and plants and and that whole relationship that's there. And um, and so I, when I decided what type of plants I wanted to grow, uh, I had friends that were in the uh, herbaceous stuff, so flowers and that, where people plant them and and then they die in the fall and they come back and buy, you know, they expect them to die in the fall and come back and buy them again in the spring. And they all think I'm kind of a little bit crazy for growing things that will live a hundred years and <laughs> uh, but anyways it's it's I decided the plant material that I was going to specialize in is what I had an interest in all my life and that was plants that uh, played a big part in habitat and what held animals what kept them around what they like to bed in uh, what they like to eat uh, things like that and so I know it's a real focused narrow, niche thing, but that's what I wanted to do, and that's what I enjoyed. And so, um, as it turned out, uh, quite a few people that have land are interested in how they can improve it and um, do something for the animals, either to attract more of them or, 
or get the ones that they have to have a little more to eat, be a little healthier, get them through the winter, whatever their goals are. And um, and so, yeah, uh, my customers and I have a lot in common that way. No, that's great. And, uh, you know, we understand about about niche and, and uh, you know, habitat focus and, um, you know, definitely appreciate guys like you going into that and coming out with, with products and, and uh, plants that, benefit us uh more so than trying to make something work you guys have this stuff the exact stuff so tell us more about if someone is just getting into planting trees and shrubs for better wildlife and habitat where do they start i mean say they just bought some land or they just got permission to plant something on a on a friend's property where do you even start yeah see that can be overwhelming for for a lot of people because there's so many different things that you can do that is beneficial for uh, the land and beneficial for the for the plants. And so um, I think it starts out with um, knowing your soil type. Uh, typically, most farms are kind of a mixed bag from clay to gravel to loam to wet to dry and and so on, and I, I see a lot of, oh, when people buy apple trees, for instance, because uh, they know deer like apples, and, and they've got this low spot um, that's, uh, oh, early shadows develop in the evening that deer like to kind of step out in those shadows, and man, that'd be perfect spot down in that low area for my apple trees to draw in there a little more, and and so they plant these apple trees in wetter soil than they should be in. And then it's down in elevation, so it's in a frost pocket and frost the flowers off every year. So they have these apple trees down there and, and um, they don't produce for them. And, and, you know, then they talk to their friends or talk to somebody else and they realize they, what's going on, that it needs to be on higher ground, it has to be in a well-drained soil. So um, talking with somebody like myself or, or somebody that could give advice and uh, that would ask a customer the type of ground that they have. Is it high? Is it low? Is it wet? Is it dry? Is it real sandy? Is it gravelly? Is it a, just a good loam soil or clay? And try to match the plants up to the soil types. And um, it does take a little planning um, and asking a few questions. And usually there's people like myself that that will take a little time with a customer on the phone, more in the wintertime. Uh, right now is a good time to catch me when I'm not, you know, busy on the phone and getting trucks in here for shipping and that. But I can take a minute and help people kind of uh, – Focus on what to plant. So, and, and and as far as what to start with, that's always the big question. Okay, what do I do first? And I always tell people uh, to start with the, in my opinion, the top six plants um, for wildlife habitat in terms of the food that they like to eat. It's significant enough for them that they'll go out of their way to seek this food out. Um, it's, you know, in their top 
um, preference list of things to eat. And those six things, and if you don't have these six things, this is exactly what you'd want to start adding to your property right away. And these are not in order um, of priority because I think all of them are right at the top. And that's apple trees, crab apple trees, pear trees, white oaks, chestnuts, and persimmons. And so we kind of, I kind of tell people, let's start there first. And, and then I'll ask, describe your soil to me and you have some low spots. And, and unfortunately, sometimes uh, none of those plants will work uh, for the type of soil that they have. And we have to go into a secondary plant. You know, still beneficial, still will draw habitat, but just not at the top of the food chain list like those top six are. But you're better off because you pretty much can throw your money away if you put trees, if you try to force plants into soil that they're not going to do well in. It's, um, you can't will it to, uh, for them to make it. They're going to struggle. That's, that's interesting. I don't think I hear people talking about that enough that your soil has to match or should match the what you're planting. I mean, that seems so simple, but yet I feel like I, yep. I, I don't hear that very much. Unless you're talking about food plots, then you hear it all the time. Um, okay, so I heard your top six plants. Is there, I know you said not in order. What is the order of those top six, or is there maybe uh, a step A, B, and C? Yeah, so rather than in, you know, because the next question, once I answer that question or give that advice on what to plant, then usually what follows is, well, what would you start with first? Or um, out of those six, which ones do they like the best? And and so I, here on our farm, you know, we have every, everything here. Uh, my goal when we bought the land is to plant everything here that and make the business self-sustainable uh, by taking fruit and nuts and cuttings and and grafting material and so on from the trees that are on the on the land. So there's a quite a long time before that developed into something that's self-sustainable. But everything that we grow is here on the farm, so. You know, we'll see one day a deer go into the apple orchards and um, and eat the apples. And so you think, well, and they really like those. Maybe, heck, they walk right by the pears. Maybe they like them better than the pears. But if you observe them uh, enough time, it's a good, good way of doing that is sitting in a tree stand. On another day, you'll watch them walk through the apple trees and go to the pears. Um or to the through both of those over to crab apples or off to a white oak or off to a chestnut tree, and um, and and so it's not so much we that one of them is a preferred over the other. There's some kind of strategy that goes into this. So let's say we decide apple trees are the ticket. I want to go with all apple trees. And apple trees traditionally flower usually the first week of May or the second week of May. Now, here in Michigan, 
um, it happens with enough frequency. If you only have apple trees, you you'll see this, but you'll get a late frost, and it'll come in and it'll kill all the blossoms on all those apple trees, and you won't have a single apple on any of them. They're done. Or maybe you don't get a late frost, but it's cold. It's 39 degrees. Well, bees are warm-blooded, or excuse me, cold-blooded, and uh, they're not flying that day. They're, they just don't have enough energy to be out there working. So you get poured pollination on years where there's some uh, cold weather like that. And so where the other trees come in, like pear trees, pear trees typically flower two weeks ahead of apple trees. So if a late frost comes in in May and wipes out the blossoms on your apple trees, well, it missed your pears because they flowered two weeks earlier, and your pear trees are going to have pears. So you didn't get stumped that that year for fruit. And, and I think the soft-mass fruit of persimmon and crab apple and apples and pears are kind of a treat for the deer. They really do enjoy them. It ensures that you're going to have something there. Now, persimmons kind of a labor of love. You, sometimes, like this past uh, polar vortex that came down, we hit 19 below um, here in Michigan. And sometimes on a young persimmon, it can take that plant out. It'll freeze out and have to be replanted. So it takes a little commitment. But once your persimmons get a little older uh, and you have regular winters that are around zero or so, uh, they'll get through them okay. And then uh, those flower in June, so they almost never get frosted. So if you have apples and pear, crab apples that flower all different kinds of times, and persimmons, you're really setting up kind of an, an insurance um, that that year in the fall, there's going to be something sweet and sugary to attract deer for hunting season. You're almost never going to get skunk done. I think that's a great idea, Charlie, and, and I've done that with my food plots a little bit. So you're basically saying diversify the risk yeah. of, of a winter or something happening, no matter what that is, with, with the three or four different types of mass trees. And, and the deer yep, like yep. diversity anyways, we all know that. So plant a little yep, of, but, of everything. Yep, that's a great way to put it. So yeah, it's the diversity that sets you up for success. And, you know, you have all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's the same as I'm not as familiar with the food, food plotting as I am with the Woody's class plants, but I know there, there's some crossover there, too. Yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, if, if uh, you do a, a no-till or you do a spring planting versus a fall planting or a frost seed, all those are yep. going to have different times of the year where they could be subject to, to something happening to them. Um, yep. Do a little bit of everything, you, you cover your butt, if you will, so... Oh, very nice. So once once you decided, then okay, I that makes sense to me. I'm going to get a package of 
whatever, you know, apples and some pears and and persimmons and some chestnuts, and I'm just going to go for the whole diversity thing. Um, then uh, uh, what plants to pick uh, comes really next. And as a as a grower, you need to get your orders in with growers a lot earlier than people um, think. Uh, meaning a uh, garden center will open in uh, the spring and they'll just be getting their inventories in and that's a good time to go down to your local garden center because they're all stocked up. For a grower, they take their orders in the winter and ship in the spring and then close because we have to go into production to grow next year's crops. And this is a great time of year for people to start thinking about what they're going to do this spring and get their orders in. Now, whether they're with me or anyone else, um, growers start to run out of inventory. And if you wait till spring, thinking that's the ideal time to call us, um, most growers are out of everything by April. And the pickings are kind of slim. So right now, it's a very good time to um, start thinking about what you're going to plant. Go out on a sunny day. Today happens to be sunny here in Michigan. It be a great day to go out and pace off, uh, you know, where 10 apple trees are going to be or how much room you have and put in some little marking stakes or whatever and count up how many plants that you need to do that little section this year and, and do some noodling on what. And then get your orders in um, so that the plants are booked and then they're available. They're shipped to you in the spring and, and you don't have to make that phone call uh, where they're out of things. So um, now is a real good time for this this type of conversation to go on and get people thinking about what what and how many and, and uh, when they should pull the trigger on um, getting things ordered up because right now is good timing. Now, Charlie, you're talking about the garden centers. You know, the average guy is going to get on there. He's going to see a tag on the tree. It's going to say apple on it. He's going to grab it, stick it in the ground. You know, what what other concerns would uh, a, a guy like that should be thinking about? You know, there's there's a lot more to it. You want to walk us through, you know, the different varieties and even the rootstocks? Yeah, so that's a good question, Brian. Um, one of the things... It, actually, one of the most important decisions you'll make, other than drop times, you know, when the apples will fall out of the tree and you want a um, mix of some, you know, early, mid, and late, but is the rootstock, and no one just talks about the rootstock, and it goes back to what type of soil you have. Is it sandy? Is it loam? Is it clay? Because most of the trees that you find at the big box stores, tractor supply and so on, come from big commercial uh, growers uh, that specialize really in processing types of, of apples and commercial type apples. And the people that plant those um, want a small tree. Uh, it needs to be small because they're 
um, big trees are cost too much for labor for people to climb ladders and pick them. They want machines uh, and or a lot of people just being able to walk down a row and get them all picked. It lowers labor costs and helps the bottom line at some of those places. And so um, they're usually tagged with this g- generic tag that says semi-dwarf. And, and semi-dwarf is for the rootstock. Um, there's so many types of semi-dwarfs um, that it's sometimes it's just the wrong type of root system for the application for the tree. So a deer apple tree, I think, is, is different in that way. Um, the commercial guys want the smaller trees. The smaller trees are, are actually controlled by the root system. So what is done is the root systems are developed to be a poor root system. I mean, they, they do this on purpose. It's intentional. And these small root systems can only bring in so much food so much water, and that affects the height of the tree. So, well, these poor root systems, some of them will never be any bigger than about a half bushel basket in size if the tree's 50 years old. And so for orchardists, they know how to deal with that. They'll feed them and water them and, and give them the supplies that they need, the nutrients that they need. For the average guy, for you know, putting trees out to grow on their own, this uh, root system uh, is brittle and it's tender and it's it's weak. And meaning if it's put in clay soil, the roots trying to push into that clay soil will break off and it'll just, they'll stay these small roots. Or if they're in sand, uh, they don't have a great big root system to find moisture on a drought, droughty summer, and so they can run out of water, and there's a tree 10 years old that the leaves are drying up on, and you wonder, what's going on there? So it's for deer applications, you you want something that has a very aggressive root system, and we use a couple that we like, uh, Bud 118 is one of the root stocks that we use, and M111. And what we like about them is they are really powerful, large root systems that can punch through clay. Uh, it'll form a massive root system in sand where, you know, that week or 10 days or two weeks where you have a drought, it can find enough moisture that it can get through a drought on its own. And they're pretty standing. So some of the other trees that have these smaller root systems are designed to be on stakes or wires. And the people in the orchard business know how to deal with them and are very successful with them. But for the average guy that plants these, uh, it might happen in 10 years, but the tree will get a load of apples on it. It'll be a good year. Everything gets pollinated good. And then you'll have a thunderstorm come through it with a little wind, and you'll find the tree laying on the ground because it just doesn't have enough roots under it. And it's... Wow done that way intentionally, and they, they do it on purpose. So, uh, you know, it's always best if you can buy your apple trees and know the rootstock. 
and not just a loose term of semi-dwarf because uh, Bud 118 and M111 steps the tree down in size just a little bit. And um, in other words, it's pretty close to a full-size tree. And for, for feeding deer, we don't want a small tree that's easy to pick and helps our bottom line. We want a big tree that produces a couple hundred more pounds of apples than the smaller trees will because that's the right application for us. And um, so I would say the rootstock is a big deal in making sure you've got the right rootstock. And, and uh, unfortunately, that's one of the things I've kind of grumped about, that, that need, the labeling needs to be a little better so people can, you know, determine what type of root system it is, if it's going to work for them or not. Sure. Uh, you well, also, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish your thought. Yeah, well, the the thought there was is years ago they used to grow standard trees, so they would you know, grow the apple tree on their own roots, which would, which is your full-size apple tree. Uh, but it can take seven to ten years for those to break their juvenile phase and start to have apples. And so the benefit of going to a rootstock and using a rootstock is it forces the apples into earlier fruit production between their third and fifth year. And um, and there's other attributes to it. Uh, usually you have uh, some disease resistance and some cold hardiness uh you know, things, um, it's just a healthier root system in general or an improved root system. Okay. Now, you talked about uh, drop times. So what, what you're saying is there's actually a way that you can plant different varieties to have apples falling at different times. Yeah, so that's your goal. And it's really hard because the advice that I see given um, – on the web is more geared towards information that commercial operations um, find useful. And they don't really apply to maybe what we would be using for. So so it's easy to find ripening times. Well, a tree that has a ripening date, let's say of October 1st, um, is different than a tree um, that well, that tree, that's when the apples will be ripe to eat. Doesn't mean that the apples are going to fall out of that tree start on October first. Chances are that they won't. They might start dropping in November. Well, you should know that um, because the drop time is more important than the ripening dates. And and so that's kind of how we uh, put together our apple varieties in a a package we. Uh, named three times a charm, and it's by far what we probably ship the most of. And it's they ship out in boxes of ten. But what we do is we we give a variety of early, mid, and late drop apples. Now that can be modified because some customers already have some earlies on their farm that are just lacking mids and lates. We have no problem in eliminating the earlies out of that package. Uh, or vice versa. So um, we go by drop times, and you need the different varieties for cross-pollination. Um, without cross-pollination, you, the apples aren't going to set fruit, and if they do, it won't be a very good fruit set. And so by 
by putting these packets together, it's kind of a turnkey way of ordering apple trees for wildlife habitat improvement. You get the right roots on them. You get the right drop times on them, so it's staged. You, you have apples starting to drop just, just before bow season because that establishes the food source and the feeding pattern for that deer. And as that tree starts to finish up, then the mids start to drop. And then when they finish up, the lates start to drop. So you're really giving the deer no reason to change their feeding patterns. And, you know, sometimes we talk, um, I talk with customers and, and they'll say, well, what's wrong with just going with all late versus early, mid and late? Of course, my response is the, if the neighbor has early, mid and late, and they've been hitting those trees over there, why, why would they come over to your place all of a sudden? You know, they're just not going to change their feeding pattern. They're going to keep going um, where they're used to going. So, um, yeah, the, that whole package is we've made it easy for people to order. And you can be as involved in that. Uh, some of these are for deer uh, or destination orchards for, for deer, but a lot of them, because they all are varieties of apples, some of them you've even heard of, uh, that are available in stores, turn into more than just for the deer, that the family pick them in the fall and pies get made out of them and, and things like that. So it's um, it, some people want to be involved with what varieties, and, and they're naturally we... Uh, and go through the varieties with people and and help them pick which ones for them. And then usually we we also encourage in that package a crab apple tree. Um, the, the crab apples will make hundreds, sometimes thousands more blossoms than an apple tree will. And they have the ability to attract bees from a mile away. So uh, anything you can do to help attract bees into the area where your fruit trees are, the pollen from that crab apple can be used to pollinate your apple trees. So it attracts bees and is a servicing pollinator for your other apple trees, and usually we throw one of those in that box of of ten. Oh, wow. I didn't know uh, crab apples were could attract a bee from that far away. That's interesting. Yeah, they smell them. They okay. They that way. Now, Charlie, if you're looking at, I have, a, I have another question, kind of shifting gears here. If you're looking at one of your pear trees, say a hybrid pear versus a kefir pear, and grafted versus non-grafted, what does what does all that mean to the the normal guy like myself? You know, there are pears that you can eat, and people enjoy eating pears, just like apples, that may want to use pears um, as a dual purpose for the family and for the deer. They're going to want a grafted tree. Um, you take uh, kefir, for instance. We grow it both ways. We grow it from seed uh, as a non-grafted tree and grafted. And so if we have somebody that is interested in um, just pears 
for wildlife. They don't care what they are. We're not going to eat any of them. We just want some fruit out there for the deer. So these are a little less money. I mean, they're $4 less. It's not a lot less, but never the less they are less <laughs> money. Um, and, and so there's no um, downside, really, to putting non-grafted pears out there, and it's a little more economical way of buying trees, and we so we make it available on some of the pears. And, and uh, do they grow just as well, or is it just does it so, taste different? So they're going to be, yeah, um, Jared, they're going to be on their own roots, so it's, they're going to be a standard tree. And so it'll take them a little longer than a grafted tree to produce. Usually the grafted trees uh, will produce before an ungrafted tree. And then the grafted tree is going to be a clone of the parent tree. So, again, when we ask questions, when I ask questions um, to a customer, and they say, I want your oldest pairs, and I look at my inventory, and the oldest pairs I got are non-grafted, and but I have some two-year-old grafted. Well, I ask them, "What are you using it for? Is it strictly for deer, or is it something you like pears, and you'd like to maybe have some to eat yourself?" And so, once we have a, a, a good education there and a good understanding of the difference of the two, then then the customer can decide. But there are some pears that we grow that, that are just flat, not edible. Um, but happen to be, in my opinion, best pear tree you can put in for wildlife, and that's our hybrid pear. It's um, it's a we do it in grafted and non-grafted. Um, when you taste one, it's crunchy and sweet and and juicy, and it kind of has a bubblegum flavor to it. And really, right at the minute you're just about ready to say, "Man, that's really pretty good," you'll spit it out. It's got a real Astringent back taste to it. <laughs> nice. And, yeah. So, um, but what's unique about that tree is they start dropping pears in October, and all the pears don't ripen at the same time, so it dribbles fruit out of that tree um, all the way into December. So the deer check it uh, every day just for, for food to see if it dropped anything. So it's it's a fantastic wildlife tree. But, again, if the goal is to have some to eat as well, there's no reason why you can't mix some of those together and do what we do, say, in the apple package of three times a charm, where you get some that are early, some that are mid, some are late, some are just for the deer, and get the diversity in the different drop times with pears as well. Okay, so if you had to pick between a grafted two-year-old kefir pair or a non-grafted two-year-old hybrid pair for deer purposes only, what would you pick? <laughs> That's a toughie because they are a kefir is a late drop, and and um, it doesn't start dropping until late okay. November. And where the hybrid pair is going to start dropping earlier, but will still be dropping when the kefir is dropping. Okay. And it's sort of like the hybrid pair is like, you know, 
early, mid, and late all in one tree. Um, but it's non-grafted. So some of the characteristics could be lost as a non-grafted tree, as a seedling. And so that early, mid, and drop attribute might be very important to your decision. That, man, that tree's got to do that where I'm putting it because I've only got room for two trees over there and I don't have room for three and and I and it's got to do this um, drop a little bit of a time over three months. They better be doing grafted because uh, ungrafted, it could lose that characteristic. So if it lost that characteristic, would it revert back to just dropping early? Well, you don't know. So it okay. could be late. It could be late. It could be mid. Uh, it could be early. So you're just you're not getting a clone tree, and so there can be some variances there. Some people, when they put a lot of plants out, uh, they they'll get a little of everything that we do. But some people have limited space; they only have a room for a certain number of trees. And to me, that's not the time to be be saving four bucks. Let's get a grafted tree. Right. Make sure that these do exactly what the catalog talks about the parent tree, um, and uh, I think they'll be happier in the long run. Okay. No, thank you for that. Um, I was walking your property this past weekend, and the gentleman had a golden delicious apple tree out there, and he was going on and on about how great they were. Um, I know you guys supply those, and you also supply a gold rush. Uh, can you tell me about both of those apple type apple choices there, and what the uh, benefits may be? One better than the other? Are they both great, etc.? Okay, so sure, that's another really good question. Um, years ago. Um, I think the old timers would tell you to plant crab apple trees. They're a lot less work. They don't get the disease that the regular apple trees do. You know, you'll be happier if you plant a bunch of crab apples. And, and so that's what a lot of people did. And there's a lot of wisdom there. Uh, they're not as susceptible to some of the, um, molds and mildews and disease that apple trees can get. Um, but about 25 years ago, they discovered a crab apple that was immune to all apple diseases, not resistant. It was just immune. Wow. So, yeah, so apple breeders got excited about this because the breeding opportunities now presented itself. And, and so Gold Rush is, is actually a Golden Delicious which is a real tasty apple to eat, um, when they cross the Golden Delicious against this crab apple, the first resulting hybrid was half crab apple and half Golden Delicious. Apple was small. Um, and so what the breeders would do is they would breed that hybrid that was half Golden Delicious and half crab back to the parent Golden Delicious. So the resulting hybrid from that is two parts Golden Delicious, one part crab. And so they did that seven times. Oh, wow. And 
when they were done, they had this nice big yellow apple that was crunchy and juicy and tasted just like a Golden Delicious and was disease resistant. And so now that's really opened up. And we, I graph so many of those uh, and we sell so many of not just that particular apple, but the disease resistant uh, line of apples. And so these are things like Red Free, John Free, Liberty, Enterprise, Gold Rush, or some of the names. And they, you can get those in early, mid, and late crop varieties. Um, but you get apples now that are tasty to eat, just like regular apples, but are just not as needy as, as uh, the old-time apple varieties. They just don't need the sprays. Some years, our apples back in the uh, farm, the Liberties and the Gold Russian Enterprise, they look like they've been sprayed all year. They they don't have the oh, the scab on them that some of them do. Enterprise is a, a real interesting because we have uh, cedar swamps, and one of the things apple trees hate is cedar rust. And when those cedars give off those, that those spores, they float around on the air. And if your apples are downwind, they can they can get a scorching case of cedar rust that'll defoliate the tree. And if it does it a couple times in a row, a couple of years in a row, you could lose your trees over it. Uh, so you, you're you're going to have to spray, spray, spray. Well, Enterprise is one of the only varieties that we know of that is immune to cedar rust. Wow. So it. Yeah, so it really makes it now easy. And so, you know, we can plant crabs and apple trees and um, kind of have the same low maintenance, um, not worry about them getting sick and dying on us and and married to a sprayer. Um, yeah, it makes it a lot easier for, for people to grow kind of a maintenance-free habitat with apple trees by using those disease-resistant varieties. Okay, and is that mainly why people bred the disease-resistant varieties, was from things like cedar rust, or are there other diseases out there that we need to be spraying for if we do not have those trees? Well, so (laughs) this is the difference now between deer apples and commercial apples. So a commercial apple has to be defect-free. It has to be perfect. If you go down to your local store and you've got some apples down there that have scab on them, let's say, and scabs are these, they're little imperfections in the skin that if you take a knife and peel it back right under it, that the flesh is perfect. It's just a blemish on the skin. Well, no one will buy them. I mean, they have to be perfect. You have to rub them on your shirt and they have to shine and that's how people buy apples in the store. So sometimes when when we get I hear advice coming from from people that are very experienced with apples uh, they get into some of these spray regimens that that really don't apply I don't think uh, to people that are planting apples for habitat Um they don't have to be perfect. Uh, they can actually have worms on them, and the deer are going to eat them still. Yeah, true. And, and, 
Yep, and so maybe protein, you know, we talk about antler size and how it relates to protein. Maybe worthy apples would be better, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so um, that's really the big difference there. Um, and if you take a regular apple tree and you plant them in the open where there's lots of sun, and there's good air movement around. You know, it's not down in a dead air pocket someplace or in the middle of a woods that has been cleared out for a food plot. And, and um, But out in the open with good air movement, you'd be surprised how little problems regular apple trees have. But orchards, they are high-density growers, and they plant them trees tight. And there is literally not much air movement in orchards. And they have to spray or they are going to get mold and mildew problems that will affect the quality of the apple and uh, the prices they get from them. Um, so when we plant, we're not going to plant these at that close of densities. Um, we're going to give them enough room to where they get good sunlight and they get good air movement around them. And, and they just, I only spray when I see an apple tree that's got a scorching case of something. Okay. Sometimes I'll go by and I'll see a tent caterpillar, uh, you know, tents in, in the trees, and I know doggone good and well if you don't go out and burn the nest with a blowtorch or yank it out of the tree and stomp on it or something that they're going to eat all the leaves. Or if you start to see some white fuzzy stuff growing on the leaves, you know, you've got some downy mildew or powdery mildew going. And if it's real bad, you can lose the leaves on the tree, so you might want to end up spraying it. So okay. some of that advice, I think, is over-advised. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I've I've heard you got to get out there and spray out your apple trees no matter what. Um, yeah. I've never yeah. done that to mine, and maybe that's why I'm asking questions about how to grow better apple trees. But, I've, you know, I also don't think I have a crazy issue with any of them. I'm wondering, though, uh, thanks for getting into the disease-resistant stuff. I do appreciate that. Um, moving on, I'm wondering about a, a tip or a trick. Say I planted five Home Depot apple trees uh, two years ago. I'm uh, asking for a friend here, not me. And, uh, <laughs> and, and say, uh, say they're looking okay. They're not... They're not doing anything crazy each year. Um, they're probably a low-value rootstock in a well-drained soil. Um, what are some tips and tricks you would recommend to this friend of mine who uh, who could maybe help this tree out? So, again, we're dealing with the unknown, and that's underground. What root system is this? And sometimes people... Uh, don't ask me that, and I don't mind answering at all. Uh, and it might start out as, you know, I've had these in the ground for four years, and they've only grown maybe a foot. What am I doing wrong? Well, the tr tree's doing what it's supposed to do. It's, it's, that's what, what the root system was developed for, is to, is to not grow wood. They want to keep the tree small so there isn't anything that you can do to get it to grow any better than it is. It, more importantly now is just let's keep it healthy. 
And um, what, what I do on those trees is just out of an abundance of caution is I would stake them. I'd get a stake, fence post of some kind, and tie. There's some braided, flat rope that that I like to use. But people can use wire and a cut-off piece of garden hose. We've seen that in landscape kind of things. But just brace that tree so that if there is a nice little load of apples in there one day, and we do get a thunderstorm with some wind, that it'll be braced by that post and not blow over on you. And um, and just don't expect a great big tree. So uh, things that you can do uh, that would help those would be to keep them mulched every year. Uh, again, if they have a small root system and we catch a drought, real hot days for a couple weeks, uh, even an older tree, you can you can see the leaves um, start to turn on them, and you could lose it to a drought. Or mulch can serve as moisture in the soil. It'll trap it, and uh, it'll help the moisture retention um, in the soil. And I think if you did a, that and and fertilize, uh, make sure that you now the mulch it decomposes. And it turns into um, nutrients for the tree. And so there's two ways to give the tree nutrients. You can fertilize it, or you can just keep a top brush or mulch every year because that's a decomposing process. But mulch, sometimes for it to break down and, and turn into uh, nutrients, it needs a catalyst. It needs oxygen. It needs water. And it needs something... To, to kick that process off, and that's all, that's nitrogen. And so if you top dress your mulch with nitrogen, you'll use the nitrogen that you sprinkled on the mulch. And if you don't do the nitrogen out of the ground and use it, which just stole it from your tree, but, but then it decomposes and returns it back to the soil. So to, to me, I just, I like when I freshen my trees with mulch, I like to sprinkle a little, um, nitrogen uh, fertilizer into the mulch just to help that process get started sooner. And, and those trees will be fine. They just, okay. they, they may turn into a bigger, I, I'm sorry, Jerry, I didn't hear that. Oh, no, sorry. You got great information, Charlie. That's all, that's all I'm saying. Very great. Yep. Uh, last thing, too, is um, when you're planting the trees on, on spacing, um, especially if we're doing this for hunting. And, and so I'm asked a lot of times, well, what, what do I plant my fruit trees? What spacing? Well, if you go to the reference books on Bud 118 and M111, it'll tell you 18 to 24 feet. Uh, that should be the spacing. Um, we're bullhunters and I like to plant my apple trees at 20 feet on centers because if I've got a deer standing out there, it's easier for me to count my trees and get the yardage. Um, you know, if I planted them at 17 feet or, or you know, some odd number, I have to get my phone out and get the calculator working and, <laughs> and it should be long gone by the time I figure it out. 
uh, yardage. So there's a practical way that you can plant your fruit trees by by just thinking a little bit about those kinds of things when you're planting. Um, so that's that's one little little tip I give everybody that when they're calling about their apple trees and they ask about spacing. Yeah, that's great. I never, I never heard anybody say plant them for uh, yardage for, for bow hunting and, and rifle shooting. That's excellent. Now, Charlie, some of the uh, debates among some of the habitat guys that plant a lot of trees are cages versus tubes. What's your thoughts on both of those? So we, I planted a lot of plants with tubes, and have experimented with tubes and all kinds of plants. And so I've kind of come to the conclusion that there's certain trees that do really well with tubes, like hardwoods. Um, if you're planting oaks or hickories or walnuts or whatever, it helps the tree grow a straight central leader and, um, you know, maybe even give the tree a nice start on having some veneer quality wood for our um, the next generation. Um, and, and so the, the tubes for those trees, I think, work well. I'm asked, should we use them on shrubs? And of course, I'm against that on shrubs. It kind of ruins the form of a shrub. And so you're better off to either not do anything with your shrub, or if you're in a high browser area, you put a little cage around it. Just let the shrub get some size to it, and then you can take the cage off and and let them nibble away. But when it comes to apple trees, it goes back to air movement. When I, if I, if if you can remember, we talked about if we put the apple trees out in an opening where there's nice air movement and sunlight, sure. they pretty much stay healthy on their own. That's what a cage does for an apple tree. So it allows air movement through there. It keeps the rabbits off of them. It keeps the deer off of them. Uh, mice can still get through, so there is a, you always have to protect the bottom of your tree. Uh, our trees are shipped with a white vinyl tree wrap, a little mouse guard that's good for about three years before they start to get brittle. And, uh, those should be loosened every spring, incidentally, because uh, sometimes people will come back on a three-year-old tree to take them off and find out that the tree has grown into them. And, and it's especially true in parts of the country where we have deep, heavy snow, it can scrunch those things down and they'll lock onto each other and, and they won't spring uh, loose and uh, it causes, you know, your tree to grow into them. And so once those are worthless, um, we switch over to quarter-inch hardware cloth, which is a outdoor fencing material, two feet tall, and we usually cut them in 24-inch lengths. That'll make an 8-inch cylinder that goes around the base, and that's usually good for the next 10 years. But that's a, that's that predator, uh, or um, a predator, but um, a mouse and bull and and rabbit. Not so much rabbit, but the bulls and the mice that can get through the fence. They eat the bark off of your trees. It'll protect them from that. So, and you have to always protect the base of those forever. Uh, something that can be done that's inexpensive, you can use white latex paint, and it can be spoiled. It can be old. 
uh, has to be white or at least light colored. We don't want it dark colored. We don't want it absorbing heat in the winter time. And um, so, and you cut it 50% with water and just take a disposable roller and, and you paint the bottoms. Of course, you'll have to do that every couple of years, but they don't chew through latex and so they leave your tree alone. So, it's definitely cages for the apple trees. You put an apple tree in the tube, they'll get, that's like a petri dish down there. An apple tree has a lot of sugar in the bark. And, and that's humid, warm, dead air space, and just about every mold and mildew that you can think of will start growing on an apple tree. Mm. So no, no on tubes for apple trees. Also, no, you have to be careful with tubes on chestnut trees and persimmons. And those are two trees. And today is a perfect example here in Michigan. It's beautiful, blue skies out, sunny. Um, but it's 23 degrees out. Uh, sometimes we get these sunny days when it's zero out. And what happens is that sun will heat those the air inside those tubes up. It'll warm it up just like a greenhouse. And it can take a persimmon and a chestnut tree out of dormancy during the day. As soon as the sun goes down, I mean, 10 minutes later, it's zero. And it wow. can freeze those trees out. Wow. And so, so with tubes, what we, what I advise people to do that are using tree tubes on some of that stuff is you can cut the center on a five foot tube. If you cut the center, put a three foot slit right down the center of the tube, take a one inch pine block and spread it open so that air can get in there, even if you have the ventilated tubes. The ventilated tubes do not ventilate them enough. And that opens them up. Or if you can break contact with the ground, lift the tube up, place a rock under it or or um, a piece of wood or something so that it can draw air uh, from the bottom. It'll work just like a chimney. It'll draw air in the bottom and it'll, it'll flush all that warm stacked air out of the tube. Um, okay. That, yeah, that gets a little impractical in the winter here in Michigan just because we can have deep snow and, I mean, it's sealed off on the bottom and you just can't get away from it. So another tip I've told people on chestnuts and persimmon is to turn the tube over, put the holes at the bottom um, in the wintertime, flip them. Okay. And because uh, the trick is with those two tight trees, you got to keep them as cold as you can. Don't let them warm up. Right. Now, you mentioned using some mulch. Do you use any type of landscape fabric or anything underneath the mulch? Well, you you can. Um, so the landscape fabric is, is in and of itself a, a good way to keep the weeds from growing. As soon as you put mulch on top, it's going to decay and turn into a nutrient that weed seeds will blow into and start growing weeds on top of your mulch. <laughs> so I, I really think it's a waste of time to do both. Yeah, that, okay. that mulch to me is better in the long run because it does choke out weeds like your landscape fabric, but it creates a thermal blanket. 
and especially on young trees, when you first plant them, let's say you planted some seedlings or some small one-year-old stuff this this past year, and um, you have, uh, or even if you're doing a fall planting, fall planting is where you really see it, and you plant your trees in the fall and you put a four to six inch layer of mulch, you know, like a three foot circle around the tree, which is a little thicker than most horticulturists would tell you to use. Um, but it gives a nice thermal blanket to where the ground in many cases never freezes up underneath that mulch. And there's an old farmer saying that roots grow in the winter and trees grow in the summer. And so those little roots that you plant in the fall will grow all winter. And when they leaf out in the spring, they have more roots that are going to bring in more efficiently nutrients and water, and the plants will be noticeably busier that spring and summer because of it. And so that's why I like to do it. Plus it decomposes and turns into food. Now, do you ever use rock in place of mulch or just always mulch? Yeah, I have always used um, mulch. There's a lot of people who will use rock, um, especially in some areas where some of the worms, some of the life cycles of some of these worms are, um, they walk across the ground and climb up in your tree and cause you problems in your tree and and some of the stones um, prevent that. But um, I, here in Michigan, and, and every uh, a good resource to check with would be your local extension on, um, on pests in your area. If there's a, okay. a certain pest that, you know, you need to be mindful of. And we, we don't see it too much. I like mulch, really. Anything okay. except chipped up walnuts. Right. No walnut tree bark. Now, what about uh, herbicides that control the weeds? Is is there a time when we can start doing that? So, a non-selective like Roundup uh, works best when the weeds are actively growing. I think Roundup. Uh, I think they recommend 55 degrees. You wait to 55 degrees before you apply it. Um, and so you, you really want your weeds growing pretty good because they'll, it'll suck that roundup really down deep into the roots and kill them. And, and some uh, very well-known people in this industry, engineer types that have fussed with plants, they actually fertilize first and green the weeds up and then hit them, <laughs> which sounds uh, like, well, why would you do that? But that's the whole point. It sucks them in deep and kills them dead or in a doornail. So you got to wait for them to be actively growing uh, when you spray the um, non-selective herbicides. And with Woody's class plants, that's a big deal. Whatever you're buying and planting in a woody, so things with bark, so this would pretty much everything we grow. But take an oak, for instance, or a pine tree. They have Michigan State. That was a, that was a good example. They had a uh, pine tree 
couple of them that they showed us. One was 20 feet tall and one was about waist high. And they were both planted at the same time. But the one, they allowed a whole bunch of weeds to grow around it. And the other one, they kept mulched and no, no weeds. So weeds and grass can react to moisture and nutrients faster than any woody's class plant. So it it steals them blind. It takes all the nutrients and the water away from them, and they won't grow. And sometimes we get calls, why my trees aren't growing. Uh, I've had them now two years, and I bet you they haven't grown a foot. When we expect a, a, a like a hybrid oak to grow a minimum of two feet a year, and on our good year, three feet a year. So when you start asking questions, a lot of times it boils down to either weeds or a pH issue. Um, which is another big deal. But weeds are very much worth your time and effort every year to spray from. And, you, and you've got your cold season weeds and, and warm season, so there'll be another hatching of, of weeds that come out in the middle of summer and get rid of them too. Wow. Charlie, that was a lot of awesome information. Now, do you use any other type of herbicide besides Roundup? Well, so I sometimes mix 2,4-D in okay. with Roundup. Um, I use mainly Roundup. The, the biggest thing is, um, now for me, I use a, a spreader or a sticker, and it's a surfactant that you add with Roundup that helps the leaf or the blade of grass or weed absorb that chemical. And and that's really important, and especially around aquatic plants. If you ever spray a cattail or reeds or things like that, their surfaces are almost waxy, and no matter what you spray on it, it just beads off of it and it can't absorb it. And so um, these sulfactants, uh, you can buy a cheap, Roundup that has no sulfactant in it and add your own, and that is cheaper to do. Um, or, you, you know, sometimes you look at one gallon of, of Roundup and it's this price, and you look at this other gallon of Roundup and it's almost double, and you go, what makes these things so worth so much more? And there are some factors in there, but one of it is they come with sulfactants, the better uh, versions and so you get a like Roundup Pro I think is one of the name brands that um, that I see on the shelves but um, yes so a good weed kill I'll use if I've got a mix of grass and broadleaf I'll take even though I don't have to I use Roundup and 2,4-D and some sulfactant and I spray it, and when it kills it, I mean, it's it's yellow dead. I mean, there's nothing living when I go through and scramble that. <laughs> nice. Yeah, there's also been some conversation about does Roundup hurt a tree if you get it on the park? And we always figure. That. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, they are, and so I've actually, of course, who sprays it intentionally on their trees. Um, but sometimes you're going along with a tractor and the wand hits a branch and, and deflects your nozzle tip and you just spray the side of your tree. 
Well, normally, we didn't think much of it because it, we didn't see where it hurt the tree at all. And Michigan State is is saying that they have seen some damage. And so what I tell uh, people when you're using it, just try to keep it from going on the bark. It's okay. not as important as the spray drifting onto leaves. That's where you really are going to kill the plant next to it. And uh, wait, do it on a day that's, that does, it's not windy. Um, and sometimes if you keep a, a piece of Luan wood or a piece of corrugated cardboard to take with you, you can use it as a block when you're spraying around your trees. And I think it's pretty safe to use. Of course, don't get it on you. Yeah, yeah, I've not heard good things about that either. So, okay, right. yeah, it's pretty pretty harmful stuff. Wow, Charlie, now that was uh, a ton of information. Is there anything else we should cover uh, before we wrap this up? I know we, I want to talk about how people can get a hold of you and, and your nursery and your, your plants, but is there any one overall piece of advice that, that maybe a lot of guys miss? I think when you go into this, the, the first year that you plant, we call that the establishment phase, and you have to go in, I think, with a commitment, and not that you're busy and you don't have time and it's a four-hour drive, we can't get up there to water. If you can't commit to the first year to get those roots established, um, your chances of success become really low, especially on a year that you catch these week or so droughts that we seem to be having lately because um, you can lose your plants. And, and so anybody, before they buy, it's like buying a pet or something, you know. This is going to take a commitment um, and of at least a year that you're going to have to go up on the weeks that it doesn't rain, and water them. And you're going to have to make a commitment to keep the weeds away from your, these newly planted trees. As they get older, they can compete against the weeds. Um, but that when they're young and they don't have much of a root system, the weeds and grass just keeps them small, and they, they just don't grow to people's expectations. So... Yeah, look at it as uh, this is a commitment, and I'm going to have to spend some time with these. And if I think if you go in with that attitude, your um, your success rate is going to really improve. I know we all have busy lives, um, but a plant, you know, there's this thing called water traction inside the plant. And water traction is just like, um, if you ever put your thumb over the end of a straw and pull it out of your out of your drink, it holds the drink inside that straw. As soon as you lift your thumb, that drink drains right out of that straw right back into your glass. So that that's water traction, and plants have what is called water traction. So as they run out of water, the leaves start to droop, and that tells you, you know, hey, we need to replenish the water. It's losing water. And then they'll start to really droop. Then they'll start to dry out. And as soon as they hit that, just a, right about when they, just before they start drying up on you, 
is when they lose their water traction inside the plant. And no matter how much water you add to that plant, it can't reprime itself, and you've mm-hmm. lost that plant. Wow. So, commitment. I think that's an excellent spot to to stop this, Charlie. Thank you so much. I think everybody needs to listen to this podcast probably twice a year. Once I'd say more towards, you know, November, December when you're thinking about what you want to order and then once again before you start planting. I mean, my notes here are over a page and what I did wrong <laughs> over the last two years. So <laughs> this is really, uh, really eye-opening stuff, and thank you so much. That's funny, Brian. We, well, the, the whole, hopefully doing things like you're, you're doing – and Brian is doing by getting this information out. I think it helps people buy their second tree the first time. And, you know, because it seems like every time you're a first-time plant buyer, you go buy these plants and you plant them, and then you had all these mistakes you did. They all died. So now you're back buying your second tree, and you know what you did wrong the first time. So this information hopefully gets people to buy their second tree the first time yep no that's awesome really really is charlie thank you so much for you know allowing us to to bend your ear a little bit today and and learn a few things um and your time just thank you very much my pleasure anytime fellas thank you now if if we wanted to reach out to you or our listeners wanted to reach out to you and find you what's your website and or facebook page where where they should be looking Thank you. So um, the website is um, www.morse nursery. That's M O R S E, like Morse code, yes, and nursery, N U R S E R Y, just one word, morsenursery.com. I have a brand new website. Hopefully, it will be up tomorrow. Um, the old one lasts 15 years, but we have a new and improved version. And then the Facebook is um, www.com, no, www.facebook.com forward slash Morse Nursery. And some of the things that we talked about today is what I like to talk about in our Facebook. I don't like to sell over there. I don't like it to be about um, anything other than learning about plants, um, you know, more informational uh, things that we are doing at the barn and videos of grafting and, and um, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, we try to keep that just uh, people that are interested in this type of thing would find, I think, that interesting. And we try to keep it on that informational level. Great. No, that's awesome. And everybody should go to Charlie's page, give him a like and a follow. I just popped in there one day, and he's just a very nice guy. Showed me the, the grafting technique and, and showed me around. Just a, just a great guy. So, Charlie, thanks again so much for coming on. And, uh, well, I'll be getting an order from you uh, pretty soon. I placed mine with the QDMA boys. So. Okay. Well, thanks, Jared, and thanks, Brian. I appreciate your guys' effort in this. 
No problem. Thank you guys so much for listening, and thank you, Charlie, for coming on the podcast. That was very nice of you, and you are a very knowledgeable guy. I look forward to getting my Morse trees here very soon and getting them in the ground the proper way uh, with all your direction. Guys, again, for everybody who's leaving us a review on iTunes, you guys are amazing. There's a bunch of great reviews going up there, and I am sending out decals to those who leave good reviews. Thank you so much. Now, I want to also thank our sponsors, the Habitat Hook, Packer Max Line of Call to Packers, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Killer Food Plots, and Dip That Hydrographics. Thank you guys for your support. Guys, anybody who goes on our website and submits their email address is going to be entered into an email drawing at the end of this month. It's uh, March now, and anybody who is part of the email club will be drawn for a special gift. So go on there and check it out. If you're new to the podcast, you can find us at HabitatPodcast.com, Facebook and Instagram, both the Habitat Podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, wherever you guys listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us. If not, let me know. I'll make sure we're on there. So anyways, guys, thank you so much again for listening. We truly do love the support we get from all our loyal listeners. And, uh, you know, we'll be back soon. Get out there, be safe, and tune back in soon as we're becoming better Habitat Managers.